Welcome back to part two of Here Comes the King, Steve Carmen. Among the many things that you do, Steve, you're also an author. You've released two books. Anyone that's written books will tell you it's very time-consuming and difficult. You've got not one, but two. One, three. Oh, you got three books. Hey, come on. I am, you know? I am Who are you talking to? You think I'm just some bum who wrote two books? <laughs> I am slagging with the research here. This is, this is terrible. It's okay. I know one of them is Me and Bobby D. It's about your experiences Correct. with Bobby Darren. The first one I ever wrote was called Through the Jingle Jungle. Through the Jingle Jungle. And it jungle. was like a, text, a textbook about how the advertising business works here. I'm trying to encapsulate it in a few minutes, but... It's about my experiences learning that, you know, not to give you music away, and here's how it works in a studio, and which doesn't work that way anymore, because in the old days, we used to record, you know, mono. I mean, people think mono is a disease, but uh, <laughs> in the old days, monaural, when you, you would bring in an orchestra, a 40-piece orchestra, and you played it at the same time, everyone played it together, and the singers, when there was a group, were off in the corner in a little enclosed area, and you did it live. And that's what the music business was. And I described how to do that and how you presented it to the client. I remember I used to write things at home and I would go to the advertising agency where they had a piano in a room. And they would bring in, you know, all the staff on that account and I would sit there with, the piano was facing the wall and I would sit there and play my, you know, whatever I'd written. And one day I said, you know, I really don't like the idea of singing to a wall. And I, I'm not kidding, Rick. I got up and I literally picked the piano up and I did you know, a little spinet. There were no synthesizers in those days. And I picked the thing up and I rolled it around and said, now I'll present it to you. <laughs> and they, they were politely pissed off that I'm moving their furniture. <laughs> <laughs> but they liked the song. That's the important part. See, that I'm is an old the man important. from show business, you know. What about your uh, your third book, Who Killed the Jingle? Is that a whodunit? No, it's just what happened to the business that started as an industry where everyone worked with live music, where people sang on their work to achieve residuals and, and did not hold to their rights. And I told the story about how, uh, you know, I had, had, I had written Budweiser music before When You Say Bud. I had written two years' worth of a campaign called... What was it? Bud is the king of beers, but you know that. Bud is the king of beers, but you know that. And I had signed their contract, but now I had met my friend Peter Kelly and I had gotten wise. And I went to them and I wrote the current, the one, you know, when you say Bud, you've said it all. They loved it. They gave me, you know, I think $1,500 for it to do the demo, which I spent more because I brought in a whole band and a tuba and, you know, great people. Valerie Simpson was the singer. And they loved it. And I said, but I don't sign the old contracts anymore. Here's my contract. And they sat with it. They said, no, we're not signing this. And I said, well, you can't have the song. They said, well, we, no, we, we don't do this. We have to go to our lawyer. We have to do this. And they said, no, we're not going to use it. Now, this Budweiser, before that, I think the year before when you say Bud, I think I had earned something like thirty-five or $40,000 from being a singer on the track. And I said, I don't want to do that anymore. And, and my wife and I talked it over and we had just moved, bought a house and we, you know, life is getting better. I was going to give in. And uh, first thing on Monday morning, my client who was in St. Louis called me and said, okay, they like the song enough, they bought your deal. And that was a life-changing moment for me because I realized no matter how nice a guy I am and how many jokes I can tell and how much I can make you laugh and how much whatever, if you don't like my music, you don't have to like me. 
the important thing was they liked the song, and you, if you were to book to license a song sung by uh, I don't know whoever you like, Tony Bennett, you have to pay for it. You just can't go on and use my music and not pay for it. And they bought it. And once they did that, for every client that went on afterwards, when I had the same argument, what are you talking about? We can't sign your contract. This is terrible. I said, well, Budweiser did it. General Motors did it. Ford did it. Hershey did it. You know, and they say, oh, okay, what the hell? You know, they don't care. You're talking to business people who have no financial interest in it. I, was, I have been involved, unfortunately, in a couple of lawsuits in my career. The thing that I learned from them is that the lawyer who is your wonderful lawyer and who works very hard and so on and so forth, and the case is over. The case is over. He, he's not thinking about it anymore. And if you win or if you lose, primarily, if you lose, you live with it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And the lawyer is moving on to other things, and he's, you know, so it's, it's, it's not, uh, there's, no, there's no love here. This is a business. You know, I have a sign. I'm sitting at my desk now, and I'm looking at a sign that says, in business, you don't get what's fair. You get what you negotiate. And that's very, that's big news. You don't get what's fair in business. You get what you negotiate. And I'm not unfair about, you know, what I, my terms, whatever. I want to own my music. I want to know that if I die tomorrow, the copyright law now gives the, the composer life plus 70 years. So 70 years from now, if I write a big hit song today and it goes on and it's going forever for the next 70 years, my family's going to get paid. That's very important. It is, and, but that is the essence of the music business. You have to separate music business. There's the music part, which is the fun part, and there's the business part, where everyone's out there with a long knife to cut off your, uh, your business, right. you know, unless you stop them. So a lot of these companies that gave you money to go into the studio, you produced, arranged, composed, you hired the people you wanted to hire. You remember Halo Shampoo? Absolutely. Was that your first real arrangement where you, you kind of... Uh, yeah, one of the very first. This was a rearrangement of something. Uh, there was a classic Halo song. Halo, everybody, Halo. Halo is the shampoo that glorifies your hair. So Halo, every, you know, one of those from the 30s and the 40s. I was asked to do a rearrangement of it, and the opening of that commercial was a, a photograph of an old phonograph record. You know, an old 78 scratchy... And we recorded the track, and we needed a voice that sounded like one of these old voices. And I said, you know, I can sing well enough for that. So we put a, a, a filter, or really like, I forget what they call it, a very high-end, took all the, the lows off it, and it sounded, and it, hello, everybody, hello, hello, is the shampoo that glorifies your hair. And then we put a scratch track over it. <laughs> and you put this... And that's, you match that up, and it sounds like an old phonograph record. And a hand reaches in and grabs the, the uh, phonograph needle and rips it off, picks the record up and smashes it, and the announcer says, but now there's a new halo. And I got three girls. Valerie Simpson was one of them. Leslie Miller was another, and I think Casey Sissick. And three girls come in, and they start to sing like the Supremes. Halo, everybody, halo. You know, I did a real quick rock and roll track. It was terrific. But I was the singer on the first part, on you know, as the old voice. And I, I think I had earned $200 to write the arrangement. And I think I earned something like $66 to be the orchestra leader. So for $266, and I was also listed as the singer, and I was a sole singer, according to the union. Two weeks later, I get a check for $1,600 for the first week's use wow. of my voice 
Two weeks later, another check for $1,600, and then a check for $3,500 to cover all the small markets. And I said, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. And that's when I learned that I don't want to sing on everything I do, so why should the people that I hire make more money on this than I do? And this is exactly the argument that explained to Peter Kelly, that the, the agent at William Morris. And I said, Peter, it's not fair, I, as a composer, if you hired him, if you booked the right to use uh, a Frank Lesser song or an Irving Berlin song, you would be paying money for every use or every quarter or once a year, however. And you can't just get away with it and make me, you know, and expect me to sing on it and be satisfied. So he devised an idea that I would get a payment each time for every year or every quarter. We varied it depending on, you know, what the product was. But it was not one where I gave it away. I refuse to do that, Rick. I know I sound adamant about that, but that is the essence of being a composer today. And you, as a, you know, you're not a civilian, but a civilian doesn't hear this when they listen to a, you know, a, a phonograph record or something on Spotify or something. They they don't think about where is the money going for this. Yeah, no, they but don't. I promise they don't. They don't. They, and, you know, they're going for the entertainment factor. And I'm very protective of my own music. I always have been, even when I was 18 years old. Luckily, I was, I was born into an era, well, maybe not born into the era, but by the time I was coming of age and writing my own music, I was already cognizant that you had to protect yourself. And I was lucky enough to have people like Brian Holland and, and some great songwriters, yep. you know, give me some good advice at that time. And, and yes, it, absolutely. There are things that stick in my head about that, even to this day, that I stubbornly still kind of side with, and I, and I won't let go of those things, including this interview. Well, thank you. But I, you know, early on I learned that at the copyright, to file a copyright, you have to write out the music on a piece of paper. And you send it to Washington with a form, and it used to be, I think, $30. Now it's up to, maybe up to $80. But at my office in the days when I was really roaring in the business, I would have special lead sheets prepared for every session. And I came back after the session, and my secretary then, my assistant, her instruction was, <clears throat> before you send out the bill, before you do anything, you file for the copyright. Here's the music, here's the form, I signed the form, signed the check, send it off to Washington. And at least I know that I protected my work to the best of my ability. Sometimes I had to fight for it, and many times I did not win, and many times I won in situations where I'm glad I won. But I would have had no argument, I would have had the, not the ability to make the case whatsoever if I didn't file for the copyright. I believe in it. You know, there was a recent case about a Marvin Gaye song. You probably know the music better than I do. But Marvin Gaye's estate sued someone for claim that they ripped off Marvin's song. And the reason that they won is Marvin's people had then had submitted to the copyright office a lead sheet. And the lead sheet had the music written out on it. And it was copywritten back in 1972, whatever the date was. And you can't beat that. This is proof that I wrote that at that time. Yeah. So anytime, you know, file for the copyright. Absolutely. Want to be, be a songwriter? File for the copyright. I've got all my copyrights in my closet and a little envelope that never moves. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Same thing. It goes back all the way back to those old little, you know, nudie movies that I used to score. Just researching your career is like plummeting down a, a well that never ends. I mean, just when you think you have something, <laughs> that doesn't sound pleasant, but it is. <laughs> okay. Appreciate it. I know what you're saying, but, but, you know, it takes a long road to get to the Paramount. This is what Frank said about, uh, I, I love that story about Benny Goodman. Yeah, oh, I you do know? too. I do too. You know, 
may not always be great, but at least I know I'll be good, and I, that's why I'm a, that's why I'm the star of the show. Well, you've done so much stuff. I mean, one thing I was surprised to find I didn't know about is the Steve Carmen Big Band. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. Not to mention the Steve Carmen Orchestra. Are they, are they? They're not one and the they're same. They're that's the that's, same. You, oh. No, listen. Anybody, anyone who was not active in the entertainment part, you know, who had the opportunity to make a record. What did he call it? Called the Rick Z Big Band, the Steve Carmen Big Band, or the Steve Carmen Orchestra, and whatever. You know, you made up a name, but these were studio musicians. Well, you had some success with it too. I mean, you had this breakaway part one. You had uh, yep. Jimmy Radcliffe yep. singing on it. What was yep. the purpose of this? What were you trying to do with the big band? Well, in those days, when you're going back to the well, what's the expression now? Back in the day, I hate that expression. Back in the day, but yeah. Back in the day, when uh, automobiles of Pontiac came out with a campaign called Breakaway. Breakaway in a wide track in Pontiac. I think it was 1969 or something like that. They all wanted to have their own phonograph record so that when you went into a car dealership, they could say, you know, hey, try to drive the car, whatever, and as a souvenir, here's the record. And so they paid for a recording. I brought in a huge band, and it was, the song was so long, we broke it into two parts. And I rewrote the lyric, part one, part two. Jimmy Radcliffe, who was, was a phenomenal singer, sang it. And it got released, you know, but uh, radio stations would not play it because they're being sponsored by Chrysler. Why are they going to so play a song that has the Pontiac music on it? It got released somewhere in, and I want, I'm not going to say this right, in northern England, there is a soul market, S-O-U-L. But somehow, Jimmy was a great singer, and his version of it got caught up on some on the radio stations up there, and they still play it. And it's with a you know it's a regulation lyric. It's not a car lyric, and no one would recognize the car anymore because they don't even make the car. But the song is now being played, and it's out there. And once every two years, I get a check for like a hundred fifty dollars. Wow, there's part one and part two, right? I mean, what, what, yes. Why do you have parts? Because they really, like told you, you know, the, the burnt out of a guy who wrote for sixty seconds. The first thing I wrote was like seven minutes long, and they couldn't put more than three minutes on a record in those days. So we broke it into two parts. One started in the middle, and one was the whole thing, or you know, something like that. Did, was it a double-sided single by any chance? Yes, of course. Are they... you going to buy only one side? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's true. Yeah. Back in those true. days, they had a lot of those. That's right. Back in the day. Oh, my goodness. Look at how old guys are talking here. Back in the day. Well, look, i got to play that song. I, I actually dig that piece. I want to play it. Great. I love it. This is Steve Carmen's big band with Breakaway Part 1. we got Jimmy Radcliffe on vocals, too. Check this out. Free! Like breakaway! That's how I'm gonna do it! That's what it's all about! 
still passionate about music and about writing? Absolutely. I'm trying now. You're talking about we are now in the middle of a pandemic, but I'm trying now. I have been writing a musical, hopefully for theater, for the last uh, 10 years. You don't say. And I love it. Anything you could tell us about it? Nope. I don't talk about my work till it's done. I understand. But I have written 30 songs, and I have Pro Tools as part of my recording studio here at home. I've had some fabulous Broadway singers come and do demos of the songs. And uh, being the uh, control freak that I am, I have also written the the book part, book music and lyrics. And I love it. And I've just started to make presentations. It last started last fall. And uh, all of a sudden, Broadway shut down. And the entire theater world shut down. It's some timing. Yes. So, But even so, it doesn't matter. But I love what I'm doing. Rick, the key to life is to love what you do. You know? And I love writing it. And it's, it uh, occupies me. I work all day, every day. You know, I'm sitting here at a piano or at my computer. Uh, I write. I'm trying to... This is, this is the hardest job I've ever had, is to try to write to tell a story in song, and that's not just 60 seconds, because 60 seconds is a piece of cake now, to write a story, you know, a story that will entertain an audience that, who could sit there for two hours and be interested. It's one thing to say you can write a skit for Saturday Night Live and have a little piece of music in it. To write a story that becomes theater, you know, you can keep people's attention for a long period of time. And it's very challenging, and it's a new business for me. I'm starting all over again. I read books about theater all the time and find out how people do it, and I'm studying the same way as I studied when I was starting out as a singer or starting out as a composer. It seems like you're always challenging yourself. I mean, two hours of music, one hour of music, 30 seconds of music. You've written so many different types of stuff. With your jingles, you've written so many great jingles, but do you ever listen to the radio when when there are jingles, which there aren't as many as there used to be, but do you hear stuff and say, oh, hey, you know, that was pretty clever, or "Ah, I could have done better with that, you know? Well, I I don't want to poo-poo the current business, but it sucks. <laughs> the ab- the advertising business today is to, when you listen. You uh, forgive me. I know you're not a civilian, but when a civilian listens to uh, a commercial, it does not have any of the interest that I believe a good song would have if you can get it down to sixty seconds. And the stuff is like everybody's blind jokes. And there is no, there's no quality there. I don't know how to say it. And I know this makes me sound old. And, and uh, you know, people, when they want to use something interesting, the advertiser today will buy a pop song. And that's not advertising. You don't want somebody singing about, I love you, I need you, I miss you, and show a picture of an insurance, something on it, over it. The, you want to have something that's about your product. And that's how the business has changed. Yeah, it's lazy. Bingo. Lazy is exactly the word. Yeah, it's yep. a hit song that everybody already knows, and you use it to sell a product. It's to your credit, though, that you did it the opposite way. You're one of the few jingle writers I can think of that actually wrote songs for jingles that became big hits. I mean, that's unheard yep. of. That's, that's, yeah, no, it's true. That's amazing. But it's also, it's also uh, uh, you know, no modesty here. It's also of another time. As I said, when I started out in business, there were three television networks. And when you did something that was on the network, it ran. And the whole world knew it. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, America. You can't do that today. And people, but they will license and advertise that Pepsi-Cola is one of you. know, they license pop songs all the time. Yeah. But, but it's, to me, that's not effective advertising. I don't want to present someone's song and say that they are related to my product. I want to present you the product in a way that you'll remember it, that you don't have to have a big star to do it. Mm-hmm. Steve, what are you most proud of that you've done? Uh, the corny answer is I haven't written it yet. but That's a great answer. Uh, 
No, but, you know, I love New York. It's wonderful. It really is. It's a local campaign. That's, that's an interesting concept of it. You know, people in Arizona may, if, if they haven't been around at all, or just, you know, they might never, never have heard it. Uh, the Budweiser music has been wonderful. Nationwide, even though I don't own it, has lasted now. I think it's the longest-running television campaign in history. Over 50 years. Yep. And do you think anyone ever calls up? You think that Peyton Manning calls up and says, Hey, Steve, that's a great song. Thanks a lot. He never calls, not a letter, not a postcard, a fax, nothing. He never says thank you. I expected a bigger laugh on that, but that's okay. <laughs> I was just contemplating it. I, that's yeah. it. You know. Yeah. No. It's a, hey, I was vaccinated by Henny Youngman. Leave me alone. <laughs> well, needless to say, it's a thankless job because people know the songs. They don't always know the person who wrote them. That's true. It's a business. What do you do for a living? I write jingles. I never. That was never derogatory in my world. You know, sadly, Steve, your wife passed away, leaving you with three children to raise virtually on your own. How did you do that? How did you, you know, you, you were a very busy guy. How did you balance well, those two things? I was very lucky that I worked at home, number one, as a composer, because I was able to schedule my life that when the kids had school breaks, I didn't work. I, everybody, all my clients knew it. And, uh, you know, Easter, we went on a trip or we went somewhere for Christmas and whatever. And I, I managed to control. I, I used to work very, very early. I would be at the piano at five o'clock in the morning. Literally. There was a time, you know, we talk again, I always want to praise Ronnie Zito, my drummer. But there was a time that I learned that the Musicians Union allows you to begin recording at 8 a.m. Normally, we would do a session from 10 to 12 or 2 to 5 or something like that. But I learned 80, I can start at 8 a.m. Terrific. So I booked the band for 8 a.m. And the, I have a contractor who booked the musicians for me. And he said, seven or eight of them called right away. He said, is it, should, it's not 8 p.m.? No, 8 a.m. And there was a coffee shop in the building where the studio was. And my, uh, my tacit agreement was, everybody, if you show up at 7 a.m., I'll buy you breakfast. So, you know, the rhythm section would normally come in early. And we would have bacon and eggs. And we'd go up at 8 o'clock and I would kick the band off. But I used to work very early. You know, you start working literally at the piano at 5 o'clock in the morning. And by 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, I had done a day's work, and then the kids came home for lunch, whatever, and I managed to uh, apportion my time to be a father at the same time as a composer. I mean, you must have had long days. Yeah, and they're great memories, too. I mean, you know, it's... Uh my wife was 35 years old. She died of cancer. And it was, uh, you know, my kids were 10, 8, and 7 at the time. It's a part of my life that is indelible, of course. And, you know, their mother is gone, and I became mother and father. It was really, you know, that's a yet, and you ask me what else, like, what else I do. I'm writing a musical, but also writing a book about that time of my life. The word retirement, does that apply to you at all? or do, No. Not at no. all, huh? No. A writer never, you know, I have a little cartoon on the wall. It says, a writer, a man is uh, lying in his hammock and he's talking to his wife. He says, a writer never, a writer never gets a vacation. He says, a writer is always writing. You're always doing something. To me, that's, you know, creativity. And I'm, I'm not kidding, Rick. I have been blessed by the fact that I'm able to do it and, and earn a living from it. And right now, there is no living from it. But it doesn't matter. When someone uses my work, I promise you, sir, I'm going to get paid for it. I'll tell you what, they don't just hand these jobs out to anyone. You, you're a great writer, and to prove that, you've got some of the 20th century's best voices on some of the songs that you've written. I'm talking about people like Beverly Sills and Louis Armstrong yep. and Ella Fitzgerald. Yep. 
please, Steve, if you could, regale us with at least one story about Ella and Louie. That was, I forget the year, the early 70s, Chrysler Plymouth uh, had a campaign, Chrysler Plymouth coming through. They had the money then to book big stars to be their singers. And they asked, you know, they, they made a contract with Louis Armstrong. I remember the deal that he got to sing one radio spot, and this is, uh, it's, it's peanuts in today's money, but he got $5,000 plus a car to do one 60-second spot. Now, this is Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong, excuse me. They said they booked him, he signed a contract, okay, and I wrote the song, and I had to send him the lead sheet a week before, and, you know, I did a little scratch track of what I wanted, and I called him up, and, you know, Mr. Armstrong, hi, Steve Carmen, I'd like to discuss the key. He says, yeah, oh, this is great, man. What, how, yeah, you could write it up to a D, okay, terrific, I knew what to do. The same thing with Ella Fitzgerald. The concept, I, I don't know if this makes an impression on you, but it makes an impression upon me all these years later, is that Ella Fitzgerald sang my song. This is Ella Fitzgerald, the one and only Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah, it makes an impression on me, believe me. I mean, it does on me, too. I have 30, and, uh, 32 CDs of hers, if that tells you what a fan I am. You got it, and I have half as many, and I love them twice as much. I Exactly. I mean, this is Ella Fitzgerald. Anyway, this she was in failing health at that point. And I called her, Mrs. Cheryl, great, we agreed on the key. I told her what I was, way I was going to do it. And, of course, we did the track first. And we probably started the track around 1 o'clock, and I had the orchestra come in, and we you know, laid the track down. And she was booked at 3 o'clock. I left plenty of space so that she wouldn't be kept around waiting and everything like that. And she had someone, an assistant, come with her. And she was losing her eyesight at that point. She had diabetes. And uh, I think she died probably two years later. But anyway, she came to the session. I introduced myself. And I stood out in the studio with her. And normally what I would do is that the orchestra would play it, and I'm doing it inside of the control room, and we get the track the way they want it. Then come back outside, and I would introduce myself to the singers and sing it down for them. And Ella said to me, well, Steve, would you please stand next to me while we do this and hold my hand? And the places where I have to come in, squeeze my hand. And I said, well, of course I did. And I stood in that studio. It took her maybe three takes. I mean, she was great. And I stood there holding the hand of fabulous legend, singing my song in my lyric, in my production, everything like that. And, I mean, I, I, it brings tears to my eyes now. And this was Ella Fitzgerald. Unbelievable. She thanked me. And the thing got on the air, and sure enough, two years later, she died. And I remember when I heard about it, I stood up and I blessed her spirit. She's, uh, I mean, this is Ella Fitzgerald. And so, uh, you know, when you work with someone like that, if you can find that track, I'd love you to play it for your audience. Uh, let's play that right now. You enjoy a lot of living, and you've got a lot to do. Chrysler Plymouth, coming through. Your adventure starts tomorrow, and you know what you must do. Chrysler Plymouth. Through. When you're on the open highway with the whole world slipping by, like a solitary bird against the sky. This is Ella Fitzgerald coming through with Chrysler Plymouth. That new Chrysler comes through for all the living you do. And baby, that's a lot. Wow, 
isn't that something? Steve, give, give us some more, man. You, you've spent time around some fabulous talent as well as yourself. Well, I have been, Rick, there's one story with Jerry Lewis, you know, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and Jerry, of course, was on his own at that point. I had written the music for Great Adventure Amusement Park, and they wanted Jerry Lewis to be the spokesman. You know Jerry Lewis. Hey, lady! Right, you know who Jerry Lewis is. Of course. The, bus, the bell boy, you know, these wonderful, wonderful, legendary comedians. Anyway, I had the same kind of situation that I did with L.A. and Lewis. Well, I'm up, Mr. Lewis. I'm writing the song. Here's the song. What key? And like a, he had a phenomenal range. He could sing really higher than anyone, and he was a good singer, too. Anyway, we booked the date. I did the track, and he shows up at the appointed hour, and he walks into the control room, and I shake his hand. He says, Steve, on my set, I'm the boss. This is your set. You tell me what you want to do, and I'll do it. I say, okay, let's go inside. He was chewing gum. He takes the gum out of his mouth and sticks it on the wall. And we go into the studio, and he knew the song, he had rehearsed it, and he sings it, and it's terrific, and everyone came out and took a picture with him, whatever, and he came back into the studio control room, took the gum off the wall, put it in his mouth, and walked out. Wow. Jerry Lewis. That's unbelievable. What a great story. Unfortunately, I do not have that track to share with you, but the memory... (laughs) The memory lingers on, and I don't know if it was really spearing gum and I, but I'd like to think so. <laughs> oh, man. Let me ask you something, Steve. With all that you've done, what means more to you in the final analysis? Is it the money, or is it the pride of ownership? It's got to be the pride of ownership. And you're talking to me as a businessman now. Yes. It's got to be the pride of ownership, but also, Rick, I'm not kidding, and I know it sounds corny, but it's if the music was good... And the music lasted, and the music, you know, I listen to stuff and I hear various different players that I had worked with. It's the music was everything. But as, as the music part, the track was everything. You, you know, there's, there's a fabulous story about Nelson Riddle, who was the great arranger for Frank Sinatra. Love him. And the last, one of the last the tunes they decided to do on, when Frank was really making his big comeback in the early 50s was I've Got You Under My Skin. And Nelson, they threw it in at the last, you know, they normally would do three or four songs in a session, and this was going to be the last one. And Nelson literally did the arrangement in the car on the way to the studio, and they had a bunch of copyists to copy the parts out to musicians waiting there, and bing, bang, boom, and they come to do it, and they rehearse it in the first rehearsal of the song with that fabulous arrangement of, I've got you under my skin. The band stopped at the end and applauded. Wow! And at that moment, I know that Nelson Riddle was not thinking of the five hundred dollars or whatever he got as the arranging fee. He was thinking, you know, I went to work on a piece of music and I made it work. And when I listen to some of the old songs that I've done, uh, I made it work. Not every one of them is a hit, and not every one of them is a favorite. But I know in every one of them that really came together, there was some element of. Uh, you know, I talk about that little fairy dust comes in yeah. with some element of magic in there. And that's the part that I'm proudest most of. Now, as a businessman, that's the, you're talking to me with a straight face now. And the businessman was the fact that I was able to fight to own my music. Even if it has no value today, because there's nobody looking to play the music for the 1973 Pontiac now. But the fact that I own that music means everything to me because it accomplished something that that was not done at that time. You know, 
Every great idea, uh, Franklin Roosevelt once said that everything that we now accept as normal was once considered a radical idea. And I like to think that, you know, the idea that an advertising composer can own his music and license it for use under fair terms, this was good. It may be one of the reasons that back in 2012, you got an honorary degree from Binghamton, SUNY Binghamton here in New York, right? Uh... Call me doctor. Doctor! You and your brother both became doctors after all. You got it. So, was this degree some vindication for you? You're certainly legitimate about a hundred times over, Steve, but you're only human. Did you feel this kind of, ah, I finally got my degree, you know? Yeah, but uh, you know something? I was too old to to fell over it, as we say. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was, it was a great honor, absolutely phenomenal honor. I thought about, you know, they called me in January and asked if I would be willing to accept it. And this ceremony took place in June, and I had six months to write a speech. Uh, it just was a great, great acknowledgement. But the acknowledgement, you know, it's funny, as you grow older, it's not what's in the bank, and it's not how you live, and it's not, you know, if you wrote a good song, People remember the song, and even if they don't remember it, you play it for them now. That's what I'm trying to do in the musical that I'm writing. You've never heard the music, but I would like to sit down at some point and play it for you, or play it on the piano, or play you a recording of it. And if you like it, then I know I did a good job. Yeah, boy, I I sure would love to hear it sometime, too. I hope you can get to do that. I hope it becomes a reality. And it's, but it's very difficult. I mean, that's the challenge of everything. But, the, you know, whether I could be an honorary doctor, which I'm very proud of, or the fact that I own the copyrights to this and that, it's the idea that I look, at my, I look back on my career and, you know, my children and how life worked out. It's been a great ride. Where did this musical ability that you have come from? It's usually genetic somewhere in the family. I mean, no. are, are you the only one in your family that had musical you ability? I am the only one. Um, it's a gift. That is I'm really. Not kidding. It's a gift. That's amazing. I mean, you almost never hear that. I mean, I mean, in my family, my sister, my dad. I mean, they have a little musical ability. A lot of my cousins. But you had this singular talent. You know, when you say your dad, I don't know your dad, but if your dad had a certain amount of musical ability, if he was given the enthusiasm and the encouragement to pursue it. You have no idea where it could have led him. But he was probably a civilian, and he knew he had to go go to work and pay for his family and pay the rent and put food on the table. And somehow that gets in the way of being, uh, you know, a young artist someplace out with your head in the clouds. That's right. You know, I think so many people have the ability. I said earlier to you that I think writing, people can write if they're not afraid, if they're encouraged. Don't be afraid to go out there and fall on your face, because you don't learn until you fall on your face. That's great advice. Whether you have someone who is musical in your family, I had, you know, Bobby Darren and I grew up together. And I, there was someone who had the freedom to express his musical desire, and it worked. Steve, I know your mom has passed, but did she ever come around at any point and acknowledge the great work that you've done and the success that you became? Yes, she did, and I'll give you a really short example. I would call her up one time, and uh, she said, uh, Steve, I heard a new Budweiser commercial. And I said, uh, yeah, Mom, do you like it? She says, first tell me if you wrote it. <laughs> You know, so she got it. You know, listen, uh, uh, people of that era, my parents lived through the Great Depression. People of that era, the big, the big goal was to maybe come home and you had a roof over your head and you had food on the table. And uh, it's very, it's, it is very different today. And who knows where this pandemic is going to lead us. 
But the idea of being a creative person is if someone gives you the freedom to follow your dream, pursue a dream, you know, don't be afraid. You know, everybody is not out there doing the same thing. We're not all cut out of the same mold. And if you have the ability to develop your talent and then the smarts to practice, the way Benny Goodman says, practice, then you have, you have a good life in front of you. Couldn't agree more. You know, but I, I wonder sometimes, why is it that the things that inspire us and that we're good at aren't always the things that we're encouraged to do? Is it, is it all about money in the end? I mean, we all have to survive. I, I understand that. But is there a happy medium well, somewhere? You know, I, I read a book recently by Alan J. Lerner was the uh, lyricist and author of Lerner and Lowe, who did wrote My Fair Lady and Gigi, and uh, I mean, one of the most prolific writers in the history of theater. And he came from a family of great wealth, great, great wealth. And he went to Yale and he did this and that and whatever, and Cole Porter was a, another fabulous writer who came from great wealth. It gave him the ability to express his talent without maybe sweating as much in certain areas as someone else would. And then you hear stories about the great comedians of the world who grew up on the Lower East Side and living in you know an apartment with seven other people and that kind of stuff. And they found a unique way to express their talent too. It's just having the courage, I keep going back to this, having the courage to say, no, I don't wanna do it this way. Let's try it this way. But nobody ever did it that way before. Doesn't matter, let's give it a shot. And nine times out of 10, you'll fail. But if you make it on the 10th time, this is pretty good. You know, Thomas Edison, there was a movie with Spencer Tracy about his life, and he, the, the light bulb that finally got used was bulb number 75, 74 duds beforehand. You know, something else interesting about Edison, and, and this is kind of to what you're saying, too. You kind of have to be somewhat of a, a, a madman, or at least very determined, because Edison... I was reading a book on him, and it turns out he was trying to invent a machine uh, for which you could talk to the dead with. And at, oh, really? Yeah, and at first I was surprised to hear that, but then it made sense to me once I thought about it. I thought, if, if you're not the kind of guy who is willing to go for it and, and try to come up with a way to talk to the dead, you may never come up with the phonograph. You may never come up with the light bulb. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, Rick, I, I called you, forgive me for getting down to the, to the nitty-gritty here, but I heard your interview with Ronnie, and I thought, Ronnie Zito, and I thought that you you were so inventive and so articulate in getting him, because I know Ronnie is a Mr. Closed Mouth, in getting him to tell stories about his life. That's the reason I called you, and I said, you know, I know Ronnie, and I'd like to tell you some Ronnie Zito stories or whatever. But when you look back on your own life, and I use you only as a general example, you were someone who said, you know, I want to try to make a living talking to people. I want to be able to express myself musically in a way that's different than everyone else does. And you know what? Sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. What's the expression? And I know I'm going to murder this one. Um, he who has loved and lost is better to not have loved at all or something like that. You know, you've got to try. Be better to and love and lose than to have not loved. Thank you. Leave a picture by the door. We'll call your agent. Thank you. Very <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? But that's it. It's, it's if you try, don't be afraid. My God, the world is so open for young people today. Don't be afraid. You don't have to do it the way everyone else does it. 
you know, you it's know, fantastic it's, advice, Steve, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I feel that very way uh, all the time about stuff, and I feel that way about my own life and my own career, uh, whether it's music or doing this podcast. I always try to give it my all. In the end, I do it because I enjoy it. I mean, let's let's exactly. face it. I'll probably never get rich doing this. Uh, you have to do it because you have a love of. Well, like with this show, I have a love of asking questions. I have a love of finding out what makes musicians tick. Yep. I'd rather be the guy asking the question than the guy answering them. I'm just more comfortable. Yes, I understand that. And uh, when I say sometimes I have my low moments, as every writer does, and when that happens, I have a uh, an old videotape of I conducted the orchestra at Radio City Music Hall on the night of the Clio Awards. They had a 25th anniversary, and I wrote an eight-minute medley of music, and I conducted it. I'll put that on, and I'll listen to it. I say, hey, you know, I did that arrangement. I wrote that song. I did this. I'm saying it to no one, just for myself. And I, you know what? I look back on it. It was okay. You know, you did okay. That to me is everything. Steve, thank you so much for coming here, coming here, I should, well, dialing the phone, and just to dedicate this kind of time to sitting and talking to us on the show today. Well, it's a pleasure, Rick. I was not wrong when I thought that you'd do a good interview, seriously, because I heard you talking to Ronnie, and you you make it sound interesting. If you can make an old guy like me sound interesting, God bless you. I'm not sure it's me, Steve, but I do appreciate the vote of confidence, and it certainly has been my pleasure and my honor to have you on the show. Thanks for doing it. Well, it's my pleasure, too, and thank you to Rusty, who's out there in the background someplace, right? (laughs) My pleasure, Steve. Thank you. He's been sitting here listening to every word. I think he's loved it almost as much as me. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm so glad, because it was fun doing it. If it wasn't fun, don't use it. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I think we had a good time. We had a great time. Sure. Listen up, everybody. That's Steve Carman speaking. He's king of the jingle. And we're going to go out with one last song. I think I'm going to choose one of my favorites. It's the Hershey commercial that you did, Steve. The Great American Chocolate Bar. By the way, did you get, like, crates and crates of Hershey bars, by the way? No, nothing. Oh. What are you kidding? Oh. When I wrote that, I bought a box of, I bought a box of Hershey bars. <laughs> and I gave it out to all the kids in the neighborhood. My daughter, one of my daughters was then was four years old. And I had an old Bolex 16-millimeter camera. And I, I took pictures of their faces and went to my basement and recorded the track, the one I think you're going to play now, on a Wolenzak recording machine. This is what the, used to be the state of the art. And I sang it in my basement, and what you're hearing is the only commercial that I have ever actually sung on. I mean, as a, as a soloist. Nothing like the face of a kid eating a Hershey bar. Wow. But do you think they ever send me a chocolate bar, a bunch of, and nothing, nothing. Not a, Mr. Hershey never calls me and says thanks, nothing. Ah, what, what a crime. <laughs> yes, but I love it. Well, if I could, I'd send you crate after crate of Hershey bars. I love that commercial. I've loved talking you. to you, Steve. Uh, true pleasure. My pleasure, Rick. Maybe one day we'll find more stuff to talk about because, you know, the stories are literally endless. Well, you're, you're welcome to come on the show anytime. Always love talking to you. Thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Hershey Real milk chocolate. I love that Hershey bar. Great. 
You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson. Boy, do we love followers. Please click subscribe for us. And then come back next week, and I promise we'll have another interesting artist for you. We'll be here. Will you? (laughs) 